Today's interview with Fernando Agredano was originally recorded in Spanish. This English reenactment was recorded with the voice actor Wesley McClintock. As with a number of my interviewees, I came to know Fernando through the Son Jarocho workshop at El Centro Cultural de México here in Santana. He lives in Corona in Riverside County, but he works in Santana. The commute doesn't seem to bother him. He is a peripatetic and gregarious individual, often traveling to see friends in Mexico and throughout California. Our interview was recorded on the afternoon of Halloween 2020, and it did feel like ghosts were in the air. Our conversation was haunted by some of the most painful and sensitive themes of the 2020 presidential election, a fraught event that was only a few days away at that point. It's not that racism and inequality have magically improved as a result of that election, of course, but their open endorsement by the highest office of the land has finally ceased. And I think we're all breathing a little easier because of that. Or maybe it's more accurate to say that now we're more able to gather our strength for the next stage of the struggle. Okay, so it's October 31st, 2020, and I'm on the line with Fernando Agredano, who is a friend and a member of the Son Jarocho community here at the Centro Cultural. So, Fernando, I invite you to introduce yourself. Well, it's a pleasure, Elizabeth. As you said, my name is Fernando Agredano. And I'm learning to play Son Horosho. In fact, Elizabeth, you're one of my teachers. <laughs> I've, learned, I've learned a lot from all of you. And of course, I love music. I like music. And I'm really happy that you're going to interview me about two songs that mean a lot to me. Okay. Well, Fernando, I know you don't live in Santa Ana, but rather you work here. H how long have you worked in Santa Ana? Uh, since 1999. So that makes about 20 years that I've worked in Santa Ana, 20 to 21 years. And what is your work? I'm a teacher, a primary school teacher. Normally I work with students in first and second grade. This year I'm really pleased because I'm giving a class in the bilingual program. That means I'm actually learning a lot about my own Spanish because, well, like everyone here in California, sometimes we don't have a chance to use our Spanish. So we forget things. We mix up English and Spanish. <laughs> well, the truth is we're on the way to creating a new language, right? With, with, with Spanglish, I mean. Just, you know, give us, I don't know, 100 years, 150 years, and we'll all be speaking a new language that's a mixture. So uh, is, is this the first time you've been able to teach in the bilingual program? Uh, no. In fact, I did it in my very first year. My very first year, but honestly... I had just got out of university. I didn't have much experience, and I don't think I did it very well. <laughs> but that's how one begins. Also, in the summers, I've given summer school classes in the Migrant Education Program. The Migrant Education Program, to which Fernando refers, is a program of the United States federal government, created in 1965 as part of the Department of Education. It is administered at the state level, and California's program is by far the largest since one in three migrant children in the USA lives in California. This program attempts to offset the educational disadvantages suffered by minor children of parents who migrate within the United States in order to work within the agricultural, dairy, lumber, or fishing industries. 
Such children may not be able to stay in a school for the entire school year. Or, as Fernando mentions a little further on, they may live far from any school at all with no means of getting to and from it. The MEP provides mentoring, tutoring, and family literacy assistance. So with them, I work with students who are children of field laborers, so obviously most, most of it's in Spanish. Ha! Huh. So, you're a hero. <laughs> no. No, no, seriously. All teachers are heroes. And, and I think above all, those that teach young children, it's difficult work. And it's fundamental to any democracy. That's what I think. Well, I think I get more from them than they get from me. Uh, that's right. That's right. And that's the sign of a good teacher, that attitude, I think. Always learning, right? Of course. Okay. And Fernando, if you don't mind my asking, how old are you? I just turned 50, so every day a little more. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Half a century. Yep. I just need 50 more to make a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I work with kids who are five, six, seven years old, I feel like I've never grown up. That's how I keep myself going. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps you young. Young in your mind, your spirit. But no, th then you get up in the morning and look in the mirror and you say, whoa, I look like my dad. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I look more and more like my father. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, okay, great. So let's go to the first question and consider it a little bit without the music first. And then we'll go to the song that you chose to represent it. So... As you know, this question is deliberately broad in its reach, and you can interpret it as you see fit, really. So when I ask you, where are you from, there are various ways to answer it, right? Yeah, of course. So, okay, tell us a bit about where you're from. So, okay, uh, I'm, I was born in Mexico, but I came to the United States as a small child. So I consider myself Mexican because I lived my first nine years in Mexico. Mm. Uh, but I also consider myself more Californian because my education was here. So I grew up in Ventura County in a really small community, a very small town. Mm. It was a village that was very agricultural. So my education there was very much what you might call a small town raising. That is, I grew up in a small town and even when I go back nowadays, I see that it hasn't changed where I grew up. I hope I've changed at least. <laughs> but it's important, I think, if you're born in another country and then raised in California, it's important to always remember that those things don't define you. You yourself are forging your own identity and coming to accept it. Uh, the good part is that here in California, the Latinx community is really extensive. So that's not difficult the way it might be in other places. Well, yeah, we used to be part of Mexico. <laughs> right. I mean, there are really strong ties culturally and from all the migration, everything. And so you said you lived in Mexico nine years, which is, well, they, they, they say that with little kids by the age of five, they have nearly all their character basically formed. And after that, it's like everything is, is like dessert, right? Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is, is that nine years growing up in Mexico would actually be a pretty strong grounding. Yeah, I got to third grade in primary school there. 
And then when I got here, it was pretty difficult for me to adapt to the new school system. I struggled a lot, and so did my schoolmates, sons and daughters of immigrants. Really, we were in school because there was no other place to go. I mean, it was as if we were in, like we weren't there to learn. It, it wasn't like, oh, this is my education. I'm going to go to high school, to community college, and then university. No, that is, it was just, I grew up going to school here with other children of immigrant parents, field laborers, and it was really pretty much just babysitting. They just put us at a table in the back of the classroom and say, okay, you guys, here's some coloring books, make a drawing. It was like... Oh, man, that's awful. They didn't have the same expectations as for the other kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really sad. Really sad. I'm guessing this might have had something to do with your decision to become a teacher. I think a little bit, but in the sense that I didn't actually study to become a teacher. Uh -huh. Instead, when I was living in Northern California, the United Farm Workers came looking for volunteers, and I volunteered to work with them, teaching boys and girls who weren't going to school because their parents were working on really remote ranches and they didn't have access to schools. So when I was doing that, I realized, oh, I like this, and I like helping people. And also because I feel like it was a reflection of my childhood. Mm. Yeah, I was one of them. Something like, it's great that I now am helping these children. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's really just, it's really good to return to the scene of a childhood injustice and correct it, right? That's, that's really noble. Yeah. Well, so then the song that you chose, Los Caminos de la Vida, that is The Roads of Life. So this version is by a band that calls itself Tropa Vallenata. Fernando's first song was Los Caminos de la Vida, a vallenato originally composed by Omar Geles. Geles, originally from Valle Pudar, Colombia, released this song in 1986 with the group Los Diablitos. This song was originally composed as a vallenato, a type of Colombian dance music from the northeast region of Colombia, close to the Caribbean coast. The vallenato is believed to have originated in Vallepudar, with the name vallenato referring to the music coming from the valleys. The vallenato sounds similar to the ubiquitous cumbia, but is distinct and developed separately. The vallenato is campesino music, coming from the valleys and the hills, as opposed to the cumbia, which developed as a popular dance music in the cities. Well, well, how, how did you come across this song, first of all? How, how did it come into your life? Yeah. So I heard this song a long time ago on the radio. I heard it, I think I was at university. And I remember that it really caught my attention the first time I heard it. I didn't remember all that well what the words were saying, but it was a song that it seemed really sincere, really pretty, hmm. very, very, that is, it didn't, it wasn't a song that just, it wasn't one of those, that is just popular tune and that's it. Hmm. You could tell it had substance. So in those days, you had to wait like a week or a month to hear it again. <laughs> It wasn't like now where you can just look it up on the internet and there it is. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. So finally I heard it again. And I think that finally it was when I was with some friends. I think it was with the Latin American Students Club, something like that. And we were at a party in someone's house. 
I saw he had a lot of music by Carlos Vives. So I said to him, hey, there's this song I really like, but this song isn't by Carlos Vives. It's by Omar Heles. Ah. In any case, it turned out that he had it. He was a guy from Bolivia. So I listened to it and oh, I loved it. I listened to it a lot. I, I liked so much how the music sounded, the accordion. So I'm talking about the 90s. It was a time when Vallenato was really happening here in California. And little by little, the words made more sense to me. And maybe because I was away from home, maybe it made me a little nostalgic. Uh -huh. <laughs> because yeah, this song could be really reflective. So for a long time, it was one of my favorites. But until really recently, I didn't pay that much attention to what the words mean. Well, that song has a lot of lyrics. It, it tells a complete story, or maybe it's several stories woven together. So is that typical of Vallenato, or, or how does it work? Well, I don't know very well how to answer your question. I have listened to a lot of Vallenato, and I love it. And well, usually Vallenato is happy music mm. from the countryside. A lot of times they'll mention the musicians themselves, like so-and-so is playing the accordion. Mm -hmm. Listen to that accordion. <laughs> but this one is different because this song in itself isn't. Although it's Vallenato, the tune is slower. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, the Colombian football team was considered the best in the world. That is, there was more Colombian influence than usual in the USA. And there was a lot of Colombian music. Maybe that's also why Vallenato got my attention. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And really, it's country music, peasant music, music of people who, that is, they don't have musical training. Well, for what it's worth, it's pretty clear that the people who composed this song did know how to express deep feelings, and, and they aren't simple feelings. No. And so, so you mentioned a moment ago that this song has something uh, slower, a little bit more... Uh, how would you say it? it? It looks back, right? It's a reflective song. And for that reason, a good choice on your part since it reflects back on your own past. But, but yeah, for me, the first time I heard it, I was grabbed by the, well, by a really particular kind of sadness. Not, not everyday sadness, you know? No. I feel like it has a lot to do with resignation. It seems like the singer has already resigned himself to not being able to change his fate. Well, what do you think? Yeah, he, he knows what his destiny is. Yeah, yeah, that's it. He knows what destiny is. So I don't take the song literally. That is, the guy who composed it. It's clear that he wrote this for his mother. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't mention his father, I don't know the context he wrote it in, but it does talk a lot about his mother, how she strove to make sure he and his brothers could get ahead in life, and how he's grown up now and wants to pay her back. That is, he wants to help her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like the father isn't around. And now I realize that we were going to listen to the whole song, so let's do that now, okay? I, I think it's, I do think it's best to talk about music when it's fresh in your mind, right? So... Yeah. Okay, here goes. Los caminos de la vida no son como yo pensaba, como los imaginaba, no son como yo creía. Los caminos de la vida son muy difíciles de andarlos, 
that's it. That's it. But it's moving, isn't it? There, there, there's something... Yeah, really striking. Yeah. So a little while ago, you said you don't take it literally. No, not the way it's presented in the song, because you can tell he's singing to his mother. But you know, Elizabeth, for me, I'd explain it more like being a child of migrants, right? When he talks about his old lady, for me, it's like talking about our parents. That is, those of us who are luckier. Uh, that wherever we ended up, wherever they brought us as children, in reality, we didn't have to suffer as much as our parents did. Mm. And so one wants, I don't know, one wants to do well in life so that they feel proud, you know? Mm. Anyway, I see it in that way. As child of a migrant, that one wants to excel in order to help one's parents, to help. But there are times where you can't, and then times where you can so I understand the song in that way. That is, it wasn't that I liked it because I wanted to dedicate it to my mother or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So I'm looking at the lyrics that say, Mi viejecita buena se esmeraba por darme todo lo que necesitaba y hoy me doy cuenta que tan fácil no es. That is, my good old mother took pains to give me everything I needed and today I realize that it isn't so easy. No, it isn't. That's right. Yeah, that sentiment seems key, doesn't it? It's, it's when we're kids, we believe that benefits, good things, fall out of the sky, right? Yes. And well, it's like, it's like a coming of age, right? When you start realizing that, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, you're right. It isn't, it isn't like one imagines. Uh-huh. Another aspect of the song that occurs to me, and uh, tell me if I'm on the wrong track with this, but the lyrics also say, Cuando estaba pequeñito, yo creía que las cosas eran fácil como ayer. That is, when I was a little boy, I believed that things were easy, like yesterday. And so I see... Tell me what you think of this. I see in so many parts of contemporary U.S. American society this huge nostalgia for a yesterday that actually never existed. I'm I'm referring to things like make America great again. Or how about the American dream? (laughs) Yeah, which was always just that, a dream. (laughs) Never. Never realized. But I tell you, it's alive because it's there. It's like illusions are there, right? And, mm. and well, I think it's an effective illusion. And people go after it in my hometown. I'm from Jalisco, the town of Yawalika. They use the phrase a lot as a joke. Sometimes they use that phrase in English, American dream. Like, hey, where are you going for that American dream? <laughs> Like, they don't say anymore, go to California, go to the north. Now it's, when are you going to go to the American dream? Wow, I don't believe it. I think it's funny because sooner or later one realizes that it's not. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think maybe that's a key difference between the various kinds of Americans. The Mexicans have jokes like that. Sarcastic jokes, right? Yeah, sarcastic. 
Yeah, that joke has an edge to it. It shows a consciousness that that dream is just a dream. But I think that in the United States, honestly, there's a lot of people who still really believe in it. They, they believe that it really is possible to return oneself to this infantile state where things were easy. I don't know, but... For some, for some it's possible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not exactly innocence. More like negation of reality. Los Caminos de la Vida has been covered by many other Vallenato bands and many other artists across Latin America. Hellas wrote it during a time of financial struggle, saying that he was inspired by the memory of his mother needing to run a hose from his neighbor's home to their home, just so they had enough water to cook and to drink. In this sense, Fernando was right on in his interpretation of Hellas's lyrics. Hellas was in fact thinking about his mother, the struggles they had, and their lives in relation to those memories. As mentioned by Fernando, this song meditates on the loss of innocence that Hellas is experiencing, but does so with appreciation for the sacrifices that his own mother accepted to make sure that Hellas could live a better life one day. For many, this story is all too familiar, and these poignant feelings are a constant reminder of the struggles that remain in the generational memories of Latinos who have made their lives in a new country in hopes of a better life for their children. As Fernando mentions, this dream, this hope, perhaps is nothing more than a mirage, a fleeting image in the distance never to be reached. That vision, however delicate, provides many with hope, and sometimes that's just enough to make the impossible. So, one more, one more question about the song, if I may. I find it striking that, well, it, it's dance music, cumbia, kind of cumbia, right? Yeah, cumbia, mm-hmm. And in this case, this song in particular is distinctive, you, you told me, for being a little more reflective, a little slower and sadder than maybe is the norm in cumbia. So what I find interesting is the combination of dance music, which is something where, you know, you get a little bit active and with movement, you get happier, you know? So this one, it's a dance, but it's sad. So what do you make of that marriage between dance and sadness? In fact, a lot of performers have sung this song, lots, but in this version, it does come across as cumbia. So to talk right now about the date, we're on the 31st of October, right? And it's part of that whole thing that we, as Latinos, as Mexicans, that the relation we have with death, the way we celebrate our dead, our saints and everything, I think it has something to do with that. That there's something so sad, so reflective, so, but at the same time, we're dancing. It's part of life. We move on. Let's go. Yeah. We keep going, and we know that tomorrow will be a new day, or maybe not. That is, <laughs> death is part of everyday life. <sighs> That's right. That's how I see it. For many, this story is very much a reality. Parents giving all they can with a dream of seeing their children live better. This song exemplifies that. Somberly, but beautifully. How nicely you express it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. <sighs> Great. So then, let's go to the third question and your second song. Both have to do with your hopes for the future. And this time, let's listen first and then talk, okay? Sure. 
So this is quite a long song. It's more than six minutes long. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot of lyrics, like the other one. Lots of lyrics, and they matter. They're fundamental, right? Yep. So, let's listen to What It Means by the Drive-By Truckers. He was running down the street When they shot him in his tracks About the only thing agreed upon Is he ain't coming back There won't be any trial So the air won't be clear There's just two sides calling names Out of anger, out of fear And if you say it wasn't racial When they shot him in his tracks Well, I guess that means that you ain't black It means that you ain't Drive-By Truckers is an alternative country rock band based out of Athens, Georgia. Founded by Patterson Hood and Mike Cooley, who both hail from the shows Alabama. They have worked to make politically minded, socially conscious music from the band's inception. Fernando's selection, What It Means, was released in 2016 as part of the Drive-By Truckers 2016 album, American Band. So, Fernando, what does it mean? (laughs) (laughs) The song itself asks that question. What does it mean? Everything that's happening. What's happening? That's the question it asks. Was this to explain why I chose the song? Yeah, yeah. Because I was trying to think of a song that was going to give us, that gave us hope, that gave us something that would, that is... uh, So I don't know how much attention you've paid to the words. They're talking about what's been happening. Well, it's been happening for centuries, but only now it's really coming to light that there's been so much killing of innocent African-Americans and different minorities by the authorities or because... So he's talking about that. According to Patterson Hood, this particular song was originally written as a musical response protesting the Ferguson decision and the Trayvon Martin killing. Unfortunately, The song is still timely today. I hope and pray that one day it won't be. As Hood said in an interview with Lori Brown for Q on CBC. Hood says that his writing music is a way to make sense of his frustration. It's his therapy. Hood and Cooley see their music as a personal matter, taking on racial issues directly with their music and with their lyrics. Hood hasn't stopped with music. He has also written an op-ed pointed at these same issues titled, The South's Heritage is So Much More Than a Flag, which was written in response to the Charleston Church Massacre in 2015. You can find a link to this piece on our website. Hood and Cooley see their music as a direct challenge to the stereotypes and oppressive cultural traditions of the Southern United States, specifically racism, bigotry, and injustice. What it means sharply critiques the way racism seeps into every corner of our social fabric, producing inequalities, loss of life, and a reality that we should all be aware of and actively fighting against. But look, Elizabeth, this band is one of my favorites, and every time I listen to this song, I hear something new in it. Let me begin by explaining to you that one time I was in Austin, Texas, and they told us there would be a band from Georgia, and, well... One has one's prejudices, don't you think? (laughs) So we looked at one another and we said, okay, we're going to go hear a Southern rock band from Georgia. (laughs) Obviously, a lot of things come to mind, right? When you hear that? Yeah. uh But we went anyway. 
We went to see the show and we were blown away by them because it's, uh, well, they're from a community in Georgia that's very progressive. The city of Athens, Georgia, that is more like... Ah, well, I have to tell you, Fernando, my father's from Georgia, not from Athens. He's He's from Macon, another part of the state. But I've known Georgia more or less well since my childhood, and I know exactly what you're talking about. So Athens is a university town, right? I think that's why it has a more progressive quality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so we <laughs> we told ourselves that we'd go see this band, and it turned out that we went and we liked how they played, and, and now I've been following them for a long time. And the truth is that it's a band that's very socially and politically conscious. Mm-hmm. They've been around for quite a while, but they haven't gotten that popular because... They don't sing popular music, or really it's that they don't get on the radio, or maybe it's that they don't want to be on the radio. Uh Uh-huh. Because of that strong message they have. Because of their messages, they have a lot of very strong messages. And this song in particular, it came out on an album in 2016, that is before everything happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So they're talking about that racial problem that we have in the United States. Well, yeah. It sounds... And from that, they say some really strong things. Really strong, really strong. I mean, he says, the core is something rotten. Yep. That is, that our, the heart of this society is rotting. It's, it's rotting. Uh, yep. Because of racism. And I guess if, if I were going to answer that, the, the rhetorical question of the song's title, what it means, I'd say racism. Racism. Now, that's what I think it means, although they never say so. Which is a really astute maneuver, no? Because if by not saying the answer, they, they make you think more and listen more, right? It's like an invitation to answer, to think. And, yeah. Yeah, I'm really struck by a line that says, it's about our supposedly being in a post-racial era now. Mm-hmm. But in fact, we still maintain our prejudices. That is, we haven't changed. They're saying we haven't changed. Yeah. Uh, no, not at all. And when I hear these, I don't know, these declarations of being in a post-racial state, well, I, I get really impatient. Yeah, yeah. It's... Well, it's another dream. In effect, another dream that lacks substance. But let me explain to you why I thought of this song in terms of the future, what it promises. Mm. It's promising because for me, I think it's a lot like that song by Marvin Gaye, What's Going On. That's a really old song. And also it's a little like that Bob Marley song with the three little birds. You know, don't worry about anything or everything's going to be all right. Uh Uh-huh. I feel like... All three songs are going the same way, have the same goal. But this one, the drive-by truckers, it's obviously stronger. Like, it puts itself right in your face, eh? It says, look at what's happening, very politically. And then I see how it was. Like, I see these kids from the South developing consciousness and thinking about what's happening. And they're saying, hey, wake up. Hey, look. And I like it because the guy... He's called Patterson Hood. He said, I had this feeling for many years. I wanted to express it, but I couldn't. I couldn't. 
until one time in Georgia when his neighbor, who was African-American, who, who had, I'm not sure how old he was, but he was disabled. And this neighbor, he went out walking towards the center of town. I think he was only wearing his underwear or something like that because uh. he wasn't well in his mind. And so the neighbor's mother comes to Patterson Hood and, and she says, hey, listen, my son went downtown. I'm really worried. And Hood tells how he thought, uh-oh. And so, long story short, by the time they got there, he'd already been shot. You know, an older person, but with the intelligence of someone six years old. Oh, man. How? And, and so then Hood said that he felt so terrible for so long that he felt the need to write something, like to put it out there. So in this song, for instance, he mentions Trayvon Martin. Yeah, yeah. And not very long ago, Hood said, I would have liked it if this song could have gone out of fashion, that it wasn't significant anymore. That is, that it didn't mean anything anymore. Like, yeah, that's a thing of the past. But no, to the contrary. To the contrary. And it's all the same. To me, this song sounds like it was written yesterday, right? It's so current that it takes my breath away. I think that... This is how it transmits hope, Elizabeth. I think for me, anyway, that is like... Well, yeah. So tell me a little bit more about this, because a song as forceful as this, it's that such direct expression. How is it that it transmits hope? Because it's bringing this to light. That is, it's putting it out there, teaching us. Look at it this way, because sometimes there are a lot of things that everyone knows but nobody talks about them. Mm. Well, maybe you talk about it in your little nucleus of friends, but it doesn't come out in the open because we always know, this is my opinion, there are always two sides, and we're only ever going to talk with the people who are on our side. Mm. It's that there's division. It's so clear right now, these days, that really we don't have a dialogue with others, and, and they don't have it with us. Yes. So then I think, that this song says, there it is, listen to it, the two sides. It doesn't matter what side you're on. That's an act of a lot of personal strength and a lot of self-confidence on the part of the band to present like this in public. Because for sure, they've had experiences, not just of resistance, but probably also rejection by their audiences. Yes, and then these guys, Elizabeth, since years ago, since many years ago, on the drumhead of their percussion. Mm, mm -hmm. They have the insignia of Black Lives Matter. Th that's since a long time back. So you see something like that and you say, hey, right? Yeah, how great, yeah. And that, that's, that's part of how also we ought to fight against our own prejudices, right? That is... Right, right, right. And, well, I think this connects with a question that came to me as I was listening and, and thinking about this song. And it has to do exactly with the role that music has in the context of protest. And, and it's that, in a certain sense, the lyrics of this song are... They're preaching. It's that he's preaching by singing. No? I, I mean him, Patterson Hood. Yeah. And so my question for you is, 
why didn't he dedicate himself to actually preaching or becoming a politician to express his feelings in verbal form? I mean, he already does it in the lyrics to his songs, but why not in more openly political settings instead of composing songs? My question is, what does the music bring to the message that he's preaching? Huh. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, that is, a lot of his songs send these kinds of messages. Uh-huh. And I think also that when you listen to a politician, or if you listen to someone from the clergy, you almost, you more or less know that the message is going to come. <laughs> you really have more or less of an idea, you know. <laughs> That is, there's not going to be any surprises. You know what to expect. But when you hear someone more that you don't expect, it's like it gets your attention. Mm. You might say, oh, no, I hadn't seen it that way. Or maybe this is cool. I listened to this song for two years. And the truth is, I didn't know what it was about until my friends started explaining it to me. Oh, no, Fernando. What's going on is this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I started paying more attention, little by little, little by little. Well, how interesting. So you started out listening to it for, like, just the beat? It's, it's musical qualities then. Yep. Well, I had more or less of an idea of, I did understand it, but not very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, someone got shot, and what it means, and hey, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, this fascinates me, Fernando. So... Because... It's that in a certain sense, I think you've just answered my question. That is, it's the music that carries us. Music, it it grabs us, no? Yep. And it convinces us all by itself. And then, with lyrics like that, it's like they've already entered into your consciousness. And then after a while, you, you realize what it was actually talking about. But with the music already in your bones, right? That makes me laugh, because in the same album, there's this song. It's called Guns of Umpqua, something like that. Uh-huh. It's the best song on the album, the best. And, and I thought that it was about him and some friends going camping. So I said that to my friend, and he said, no, he got killed. And I'm like, what? He got killed? So then I paid attention, and it's about that massacre that happened in Oregon. I'm like, they killed him? So then you finally get yourself thinking about how to understand it. Or else when you get home, you look up the lyrics and then you say, Whoa. But years after, you started listening to it. Like you just said. And I think part of it is, although maybe you've spent a lot of time here in California, the language doesn't come so quickly. Or else you know how that is because you speak different languages. Oh, yeah. And then there's times that you listen to a song and you understand the words, but not the message or else you have to think about it. So I'm still at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. The truth is, I listen to a lot of songs in my native language, and I don't pay attention to the lyrics. It's that, for me, the music always gets my attention. And so, okay, we all have our way of listening, right? But yeah, your story of coming to understand the messages of these songs over time, that's just a super interesting response, because it has to do with the power of the music. Well, music has many powers, but in this case, the power is to deliver a message that's pretty strong and quite political, but in a spoonful of honey, right? That is, it's, it's that the music convinces us 
before we even understand the words. That's right. And in that lies its power for protest, I think. Yeah. For Hood and Cooley, this music, their therapy and attempt to make sense of the atrocities committed all too often, is a calling meant to inspire thought and action by all who listen to their music and their lyrics. Well, how cool. <laughs> Your story is so cool. I love it. Okay. I think just to close, it's, it's a big difference between your first and second song, isn't it? It's all the difference in the world. And that suggests to me the possibility that you, in your life, have covered a lot of ground, let's say emotionally, psychologically, whatever. And then the second song, what it means, among, among other things, it's a call to action, no? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... What are your active hopes, the, the actions you hope to take in future? What do you want to do and accomplish in life? No, well, I think that more than anything, it's to be aware, right? Mm. To be aware of events, of what's happening, to not conform and to be active in local, national, state processes, whichever ones, that is not to ignore things, mm. to feel like one is part of the process. And the most important thing is action, action, doing something. Mm. You know, I'd like to do so many things, but I end up doing what I can here in California. You know, there's everywhere. There's a lot of work to be done. We know that in any community. Mm. But, but more than anything, just talking to people and having awareness of what's going on. More than anything... I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to get a little better educated. And so I feel a responsibility to do something. It's that I know that many people worked hard so that I could have the opportunity to go to university. And then now I feel as if I owe a debt to do something myself so that the future can be better. Mm -hmm. Whether it's socially or maybe not something exactly defined like this is my mission, but more like being there in the struggle, you know? Hmm. I grew up with really close to the people in Cesar Chavez's United Farm Workers. I grew up in that ambience. Hmm. And I think I bring a little bit of that to my, not because, oh, I want to be an activist for this cause, not that, but because I see what's right and I see what's necessary, what ought to be done. And well, I do it with much pleasure. The United Farm Workers is an important chapter in the long and troubled history of labor organizing in the United States. From its founding in 1962, it was led by the talented and charismatic duo of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. The UFW began by confronting head-on the systematic exploitation of agricultural workers in the Central Valley of California the country's single largest agricultural production region. They did it by going door to door, organizing meetings in homes, educating and empowering the workers themselves, and organizing strikes and boycotts to bring wider public attention, the most painstaking and durable kind of coalition building, and to this day, an inspirational model for grassroots social organizing. The UFW continues its work all over the United States on behalf of agricultural laborers who continue to be oppressed by wage theft, unsafe working conditions, and equal access to resources 
such as education and healthcare. So, well, of course, every teacher is already an activist. I'd say teaching is pure activism, activism in its purest form. But yeah, everyone with their droplet, their little grain of sand, right? The thing is to contribute. Okay, thank you, Fernando. What a great interview. I really enjoyed the music and the chat. You've given us lots of things to think about. Ah, uh, I would have liked to know a bit more musical terminology and talk to you about... Oh, uh, uh, no, 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 please. No, 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 no. So, I'm determined to put everything that requires terminology to one side, because I believe really strongly that people already know what they're hearing. They already know why. It's just a matter of opening certain doors, inviting people to express thoughts they're, they've already been having. So, well, many thanks, really. Well, thanks to you, Elizabeth. Okay. Well, be well over there. Ciao. Yes, ciao, ciao. Take care. You too. Bye. Would you like to know more? On our website at ciofuera.org, you can find lyrics to the songs we discuss, our blog about the issues of history, culture, and politics that come up around every song, links for listeners who might want to pursue a theme further, and some very cool imagery. You'll also find playlists of all the songs from all the interviews to date, and our special staff-curated playlist as well. We invite your comments or questions. Contact us at our website or participate in the Sillo Fuera conversation on social media. We're out there on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And then there's just plain old word of mouth. If you like our show, do please tell your friends and your families to give it a listen. And do please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll bring you a new interview every two weeks on Friday mornings. Julia Alanis, Cynthia Marcel de la Torre, and Wesley McClintock are our sound engineers. Zoe Broussard and Laura Diaz hold down the marketing. David Castaneda is music researcher. Deaneira Garcia and Alex Dolvan make production possible. We are a not-for-profit venture currently and gratefully funded by the John Paul Simon Guggenheim Foundation. For now, and until the next interview, keep listening to one another. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, and this is Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. Si yo fuera una canción, sonarían por las calles, las montañas y los valles, mi orgullo y mi pasión. ¿Quién soy yo de corazón? Soy una ola, soy una onda, Vibración que ronda por el universo vivo Y sonando soy testigo a nuestra unidad más honda